Hi, and welcome to Dismantle Racism, where our goal is to uncover, dismantle, and eradicate racism. We really do want to create a world where racial equity is the norm. I'm your host, the Reverend Dr. TLC. I want to invite you to do what we do every week, which is to center ourselves and to take a moment to find our breath. So I want you, if you would, if you're not driving and you're sitting comfortably, just to plant your feet on the floor and really feel the seat, the couch, the chair underneath you and find your breath and begin to breathe in and out, connecting with your sacred source, your divine wisdom, breathing in and out, knowing that you are guided in ways that manifest your greatness and the greatness of others. And today, as we're breathing in and out, I'm going to share a meditation from my book. Hear these words. Beloved spirit, in gratitude, we say thank you for all who came before us and showed us what it means to manifest the sacred within us. Let us remember their resolve to make the world a better place for us, doing so in small and big ways. Let us remember how they lived with integrity, holding themselves and those around them accountable. Let us remember how they walked in truth and showed us what it meant to be ethical. Let us remember how they worked together and cared for their neighbors who extended beyond their corners of the world. Let us remember their tenacity, courage, and determination to advocate for the least of these. Let us remember that they practiced discernment, relished wisdom, and walked by faith. We're grateful to them and remember them with love, and hope in our hearts. And so it is, Ashe and Amen. And I invite you to take a deep breath in, sigh it out, and let's begin. I always encourage us to begin with a meditation because it's our place of centering and grounding ourselves. It's that place that we can always return to when we think about our breath. Because every day, for me, as a person of color, I have the potential of being confronted with race. And it shows up all the time, even when I'm not expecting it. And often I have to just breathe through it. Let me correct that, confronted with racism. Because there's nothing wrong with race. There's nothing wrong with talking about race or racial encounters. It's the racism that's the issue. It's me having to think about the things I do that I would say people who are white probably don't think about as often. I want to give you a couple of examples. And I'm giving you these examples because I often work with people who will say, this is tiring. This is hard, and I know it is. Believe it or not, I don't always want to talk about race. I don't want to have to deal with it. I don't want to have to confront it, but it's a part of life. Here's an example of something that happened to me a couple of days ago. I was doing something at my home, and I was doing something with my car. And for reasons I won't go into on here, I blasted the music just for a bit. And I did so intentionally. And my daughter said, mom, turn the radio down. We don't want the neighbors to say anything. And I said, this is my property, my house. I can turn the music up if I want to. And she said, yes, but we don't want them to call the police. We were doing something completely innocent. It wasn't even like I was having a party. I just had the music up just for a second. But instantly she had to think about the ramifications because of the neighborhood that we live in. She knows that people would be suspicious, even though we have lived here for years and we've never had any problems. 
but still she thought about it. A couple of days later, I went walking with a friend of mine, another woman of color. And as we walked, we had to be very conscious because of the neighborhood we were in to make sure that we modulated her voices because we didn't want anyone to perhaps overhear something we said or to call attention to ourselves. We were very conscious even of how we had to dress in order to go for a walk. We were conscious about how we were dressed before we went into the restaurant because we knew that we had to show up differently. And you might say that you don't believe it. You don't get it. Are we making too much of it? I would love to say that we're making too much of it, but we know what happens to us on a daily basis, even if it doesn't happen to us personally. And in that conversation, we even talked about uh, the woman who was dragged out of a store because when she was shopping, using the bag that comes from the store, the reusable bag, she was putting things in it. And the security guard thought that she was stealing. She hadn't walked out of the store. She hadn't done anything. Her intent was to go to the counter and pay for it. These are the everyday things that happen to me and to other people of color. So it does get tiring. It gets hard. But here's the thing. We cannot turn around and we cannot stop in this movement to dismantle racism. So for those of you who want to be involved in the movement and you haven't had to think about this for most of your life, I want to encourage you not to turn around, to keep going, to understand the importance of engaging in this work. And if you have been engaging in this work and if you are just trying to get through life, particularly as a person of color, as it relates to racism, You cannot give up on the fight. You have to keep going. And so what do I do on days when it's very tiring for me? I remember the words of my mother, for instance, who used to say things to me like, baby, when you got your hand in the lion's mouth, you have to move gently. And so she was teaching me, you keep going. You keep pressing on, but you find the way to move within this entangled world, this dangerous world that we live in. You don't stop. But I'm also encouraged by people like Langston Hughes, who wrote the poem, Mother to Son. So I'd like to share that with you. Well, son, I'll tell you. Life for me ain't been no crystal stair. It's had tacks in it and splinters and boards torn up and places with no carpet on the floor. Bare. But all the time I've been climbing on and reaching landings and turning corners and sometimes going in the dark where there ain't been no light. So boy, don't you turn back. Don't you sit down on the steps because you find it kind of hard. Don't you fall now. For I still going, honey. I still climbing. And life for me ain't been no crystal stair. And that's what I think about in this journey of dismantling racism. I think about the people who came up before me the people who navigated racism in ways that are unimaginable to me. So even though there are things that I have to deal with every single day, I know that my ancestors dealt with so much more. So I'm grateful for them. And as I said on my show last week, in fact, I know that not just my ancestors, but I know that there were white people as well who decided that they were going to stand up that they were going to be a part of the change. And so I want to invite all of us to continue. I have the privilege today of talking with someone who was actually a student at Ole Miss, the University of Mississippi, when James Meredith integrated 
Ole Miss. Now, I happened to be born a couple of years after he integrated Ole Miss, and I lived 15 minutes away from the University of Mississippi. So to say that I am so delighted to have this guest on is an understatement. Because I've often wondered, as I hope you have, I've wondered about the people who have gone through the journey of the civil rights movement. I've wondered about my ancestors who did it. And I've wondered about the white people who were on the other side. I've wondered about the ones who really were perpetuating racism, the ones who were blatantly racist. And I wonder, how are they today? And then I wonder about the courageous people who decided enough is enough. And so I'm going to stand up. So today on the show, we're going to be talking about Raised in the Sip. And so for those of you who don't know what Raised in the Sip is, I want to refer you because this is a shout out to the comedian Rita Brent who wrote a song called Raised in the Sip because she's so proud of being from Mississippi and I am as well. And we'll have to find out if my guest today is proud of being from Mississippi. I hope so. But there are a lot of people who were born and raised in Mississippi who decided that enough is enough. And so I'm going to be talking with my guest today, Gangaji. She was born Tony Robertson. She grew up, as I said, in Mississippi. And like many of her contemporaries, she searched for fulfillment through relationships, career, motherhood, subcultural experiences, experiences, political activism, and spiritual practice. She never planned to go to India, but she'll tell us a little bit about that today because when she went to India, her life changed. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that today. Gangaji is the author of The Diamond in Your Pocket, Discovering Your True Radiance, Freedom and Resolve, The Living Edge of Surrender, and You Are That. And so I want to welcome to the show today, before we take a quick break, Gangaji, welcome, welcome, welcome. I'm so delighted that you are here. So. Gangaji, we are going to take just a quick break and we will be right back to talk with you a little bit more and find out all about your experience in India and find out how you got the name. Gangaji, we'll be right back. This is the Dismantle Racism Show. I'm your host, the Reverend Dr. TLC. Are you a business owner? Do you want to be a business owner? Do you work with business owners? Hi, I'm Stephen Fry, your small and medium-sized business or SMB guy, and I'm the host of the new show, Always Friday. While I love to have fun on my show, we take those Friday feelings of freedom and clarity to discuss popular topics on the minds of SMBs today. Please join me and my various special guests on Friday at 11 a.m. on talkradio.nyc. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant, and on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. on edge? Hey, we live in challenging, edgy times, so let's lean in. I'm Sandra Bargeman, the host of The Edge of Every Day, which airs each Monday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time on talkradio.nyc. Tune in live with me and my friends and colleagues as we share stories and perspectives about pushing boundaries and exploring our rough edges. That's The Edge of Every Day on Mondays at 7 p.m. Eastern Time on talkradio.nyc. Talk Radio NYC. Uplift, educate, empower.
We are back with the Dismantle Racism show. My guest today is Gangaji. And Gangaji, I am I really am very excited to have you here on the show today to be able to talk with someone who was, you know, involved in, in many ways in the civil rights movement. Uh, but before we get to that, Gangaji, I believe that the work of dismantling racism is really soul work. It's spirit work, it's sacred work. And we have to connect with something really deep within us. So that takes a commitment, that connection, to be able to connect with the soul work, and it takes practice. So tell me a little bit about your own spiritual evolution and teachings, because I know coming from Mississippi, where we came from, it wasn't uh, there were certain things that were taught and mm-hmm. there were other things that uh, we had less uh, opportunities to explore. But tell me about your evolution. Well, growing up, I had the normal Christian, superficial Christian upbringing. But I, I have to say, I was also struck by many aspects of that upbringing. I, I felt a, a connection and as I began to grow up, say junior high school, high school, I recognized there was something incongruent mm-hmm. with what we were taught as Christians, and especially in the South, and especially as a white person in the South, and in a place, Clarksdale, Mississippi, that was half black and half white, that there was this way that we were treating <laughs> black people even people we loved, we had a, a series of black maids, and I would say one of them for sure saved my life in terms of love and affection and physical kindness. So the love was there, but the treatment was uh, incongruent, and it was something that we had to learn. And I recognized that, and it sort of made, either you learned it so well that you didn't recognize anything was off, or there was something that was off. And growing up as I did in the 60s, it was in my face. First, the the Freedom Riders came to Mississippi in the 1950s, 55, I think. And it was all of a sudden, people were saying things that that I had heard from a religious perspective, but they were saying it socially. And I, it, it chipped away at something that really I recognize now, and I did after some years then, unless we are willing to see what's incongruent mm. in our systems, we really can't develop as souls, as, as true human beings. And there's a lot, of course, it's incongruent because we're conditioned by particular families and particular socioeconomic situations. And, and we have worldviews and views about our neighbors. And so it has to be faced. And I would say this was the first place it was at least shown to me there was something off. I couldn't put my finger on it. I was afraid to put my finger on it. Mm-hmm. It would mm-hmm. go against a whole tide. It would have been for my religious instruction, but it would have been against my social instruction. Mm. You know, you just said you said a lot of things that were really important there, and you were saying that to go against a whole structure, you to to go against a whole system, and I think that often we don't think about what the people who did go against that system, white included. This was a really big deal to go against an entire system. And as you were talking about the incongruency, and I think about cognitive dissonance, the things that we have to do to to make ourselves be okay with things. I come from a tradition. I am a Presbyterian pastor. The history of our denomination is that it was split over slavery, Mm. over the enslavement of people, it was split. And a lot of people don't know that history, but there was a Southern Presbyterian who left church Mm. to go to a lynching, left in the pulpit to go to a lynching and then to return. 
Mm. I think people don't understand the deepness of the ingrained hatred and racism that was prevalent. Mm. And this is a system that you grew up in as a white person. Mm. You know, we think about it from people of color's perspective, Mm. but you're here and you're talking about what that was like for you. So tell me more then about your continued evolution. You, 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 you began to see that this wasn't right. So what did you do? Cause that must've messed you up inside. Well, before I could even get to this isn't right. I knew something was wrong <laughs> and and of course, uh, people were telling us it was wrong. I remember once in uh, sitting with my family in my living room, and I think it was Freedom Summer when that influx of college students, white, black, came into Mississippi to really support the black community. And I heard my mother said, it's the Christian thing to do. And my father jumped out of his chair and he said, don't you ever say anything like that again. Mm. Ever, ever utter anything like that. And of course, it struck us, the children. And later I reflected that, how could he have jumped up and said that? Because she was making a statement, you know, really a brave statement within the family. And I had to see that from his perspective as a lawyer in this little town with the position that he had, all of that was threatened if he had a wife who was saying that the Freedom Summer participants were right. They were doing the Christian thing, the right thing. So whatever his personal views, and he did have racist personal views, his whole life structure was threatened by even allowing that in. Mm-hmm. But it, it was said, and we did hear it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, both my brother and my sister, who had since passed, had to deal with their racism as I did. And they did deal with it. They confronted it head on. Mm-hmm. And I really think that was the seed of it. Mm-hmm. Our mother, something like that, who was generally a very outspoken person, and and she spoke what was her truth in that moment. So, so it shows the power of words, though. Yes. Her truth in that moment, and it trickled down. Mm. It, was, it was huge for me because I knew she was correct. Mm. <clears throat> and I had been sort of seeing that. But when she said that, I was confirmed in recognizing it. And it I, I didn't jump on the, uh, the bandwagon. I was still a hidden... <laughs> Southerner who was dealing with her racial views and and coming to terms with them and discarding the ones that were evil. But it started it. It was the catalyst for it. And I am so grateful for that. And I was undercover for many, many years. I didn't discuss it with my friends. We didn't talk about it because it was inconvenient. And our conversations were very superficial. Mm. Until I got, I think I mentioned with you in our earlier conversations, when I went to college in 1960, I had a professor who had come to Ole Miss from Harvard Mm. specifically to teach history, but also to meet the young Mississippians who would be in his class and to challenge their viewpoint. Mm. And he did. And I, I... I don't know where he is, but Dr. Hamer, wherever you are, he challenged my viewpoint, and I, it it crumbled. It mm. couldn't hold water. I saw I had been conditioned to think a certain way, and that inherently that wasn't the way I felt. It wasn't the way I truly thought when I thought freely. Mm. Mm. So, that, so, so I think what's powerful I, that I think our audience would love to know is that your father intentionally sent you to Ole Miss for a reason. So tell tell our audience, why, why did your father send you to Ole Miss? <laughs> well, he sent me to Ole Miss. He said it was the only school he would pay for <laughs> because all the rest of the country would in, indoctrinate me in the communist worldview. Mm-hmm. My first trip home from Ole Miss 
I began to share with my parents. I was very excited. So I naturally shared with them what I was discovering. And part of that was from this history class. And he, again, jumped up out of his chair. He was irate. He said, they have made you a communist. Google, he thought was safe. And and from then on, we um, were at loggerheads, even though there was a lot of love there. And finally, a, a reconciliation. There was never a meeting. He never really got what my point was and the point my mother had been making those years before. You know, in listening to you talk, and I hope that my audience is feeling this too, we can see how racism hurts us all. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, obviously with your father and the two of you being really at odds, it caused a great deal of tension. And you are my first guest. To say that, that is, and that has to be painful when we stop and we take a look at that. And even if you never challenged your father, mm. your your internal turmoil would be great. Mm. Um, you know, and I'm thinking, I have to tell you, it's really interesting that we're having this conversation. And I don't know if people can even grasp the gravity of this conversation that I was born in the 60s in Mississippi while you were 15 minutes away from me where James Meredith was integrating the University of Mississippi. But not only that, when you began to talk and you you said we had maids, There were times that my mother had to be domestic help. And it wasn't a lot, but she did because I remember going with her. And so the gravity of this this moment that we're having, Mm. that my mother, who was an educator, actually, so she did it. It was very short lived. And it wasn't for most of my life, but I can remember that. Mm. I can remember my parents saying, yes, sir, and Mm -hmm. no, Mm -hmm. until something happened and it stopped. Mm -hmm. But I remember that. And I don't know if if people can even just grasp that, Mm -hmm. what that's like for me to sit with a white woman in her 80s who who know the structure, who was involved in the structure. And, And the thing about it is, while women like my mother were in homes like yours, taking care of your homes. Mm-hmm. You know, there were other women, thankfully, in our neighborhood who helped to take care of us and our families, right? You know, we were so connected that we took care of one another. So this isn't about feeling sorry for me personally, but this is a huge moment because I wonder if my parents were alive, mm-hmm. what they would make of this moment. Because it's also a special moment in that we can see how the world has changed. Mm. Even though there's still a need to dismantle racism, we can see that there has been some growth. And so I hope that my listeners can understand that even though sometimes things don't change in our lifetime, Mm. it does change. And so I want to talk with you a little bit more about what it was like for you just to be on the campus. Mm. If you can talk about that a little bit. And then we got to get to where you finally got to India and became this spiritual uh, guru that you you are. We want to talk about that, but we do have to take a quick break. We will be right back with my guest today, Gangaji. This is the Dismantle Racism Show. Howdy, hey, Joseph Franklin McElroy of the new podcast, Gateway to the Smokies. It airs on talkradio.nyc every Tuesday night from 6 p.m. to 7. Every episode is dedicated to memorable experiences in the Great Smoky Mountains National Park and surrounding areas. This show features experts and locals who will expound upon the richness of culture, history, and adventure that awaits you in the Smokies. Tune in every Tuesday from 6 p.m. to 7 on talkradio.nyc. Are you passionate about the conversation around racism, 
Hi, I'm Reverend Dr. TLC, host of the Dismantle Racism Show, which airs every Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern on talkradio.nyc. Join me and my amazing guests as we discuss ways to uncover, dismantle, and eradicate racism. That's Thursdays at 11 o'clock a.m. on talkradio.nyc. Are you a small business trying to navigate the COVID-19 related employment laws? Hello, I'm Eric Sauver, employment law business law attorney and host of the new radio show, Employment Law Today. On my show, we'll have guests to discuss the common employment law challenges business owners are facing during these trying times. Tune in on Tuesday evenings from 5 p.m. to 6 p.m. Eastern Time on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC at www.talkradio.nyc. Now broadcasting 24 hours a day. We are back with the Dismantle Racism Show. Before the break, we were talking about really your evolution, not just spiritually, but your evolution around racism being wrong. Mm -hmm. And we've mentioned several times that you were at Ole Miss when James Meredith was integrating. Tell us a little bit about that time for you. What was that like? Well, I had had what was my initial breakthrough about my own racism and was dealing with that. I just want to say this one thing that I went back home to Clarksdale one weekend from Ole Miss and our maid, who was I always called Florence, and she always had called me Miss Tony. I don't know if you remember that, but that was that was a given. If you were four years old, you were Miss Tony if you and I said You've got to stop calling me Miss Tony. I can't bear it. I should be calling you Miss Florence. She just said, no, I can't bear that. But she did start calling me Tony. And, and, you know, that was, that was the extent of my action, my racial action. It, It was internal after that. And then James Meredith, when I was a sophomore at Ole Miss, we knew he was going to, Enroll. I mean, it was a given that Ross Barnett had been the governor and he had fought it as much as he could, but we knew it. And in fact, he he did show up to integrate. He was a, a very bright young black man who was fully qualified to be at Ole Miss. And there was a huge riot. Mm-hmm. Uh, people came in from the hills and many of the students participated, perhaps most of the students and several people were killed. I mean, it was it was a, an interesting thing because it was the first of the student riots of the 60s, only it was a riot on the opposite side of most student riots. Mm-hmm. It was a riot for the reg- regressive tendencies of racism and the, the insult that these white people felt that a black man could, a black student could integrate their school. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Ole Miss is very integrated now and is is one of the beacons of racial justice in the South. And I think that the professors were mainly of that point of view then too, but the student body and the people who who came from outside the student body were all vehemently, dangerously against his being there. And so... Mm-hmm. I was watching all of this. I was, it was some, uh, Hillary, a mutual friend of ours, asked me, How did you feel when that happened? And that's exactly what I was going to ask you, too. Like, what was the feeling like for you? Well, disheartened. Mm. It was, uh, it was unbelievable in certain ways that, that so many people could be so angry about a qualified person attending a state school, a university. Mm. And and then I looked around in my dorm and in my sorority house, and I would say most of them, while not 
on the campus with with riot gear were supporting the rioters. I was definitely in the minority. Did they you were, feel afraid at all, or did you feel like I didn't your life? I didn't feel afraid because I was a white person. You know, I very seldom felt afraid in Mississippi mm. because I know or I knew when I was spending time in Mississippi, growing up in Mississippi, that the whole structure was designed to protect me in particular as a woman, as a female. Well, so, so but Gangaji, if you were on the opposite side, though, you still didn't feel afraid to stand up and or, well, or you verbal about I wasn't advertising it. I mean, my friends and I were in agreement, but we were like observing it, sort of in shock. But no, I wasn't at a point in my life where I would have taken action. That came later. That that actually came with Martin Luther King and, and Martin Luther King's death, where you realize that you can't be on the sidelines anymore. I was, I was, just dumbstruck. I was, you know, I voiced my opinions to my family and to my close friends, but I wasn't an activist by any means, and I didn't know who the activists were, if there were any at Ole Miss at that time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, I and I do know that there was another incident that happened on campus with your cousin or something, right? With you, yeah. well, Tell us a little bit about that, because there were some racial things that came up. Well, James Meredith did get into school. The National Guard, Kennedy called out, uh, President Kennedy called out the National Guard, and he was allowed to enter, and he he had to be attend classes under armed guard. But the school sort of got used to it and began to operate as a school, and we had a, a very famous, good football team, and one uh, Saturday, I, with my boyfriend, who became my husband, and a couple of other friends, went to an Ole Miss football game. And we just looked up at the bleachers, and there were it was a row of empty seats. And as we got up there, we saw, oh, well, they're not exactly empty. There were like three or four black students who were there. And I, one of us said, okay, if we sit here, and they said, sure. And so we sat down. We were sitting in this row of bleachers, not as a political action at all. We hadn't even considered that. But a a group of people began to shout at us horrible things. And my cousin, my first cousin, excuse me, that I had grown up with, got a megaphone and was shouting, and he was shouting, ask them about the Congo, because Congo was having enormous problems at that time as if these students had anything to do with Congo and and whatever issues they were, ask them about the Congo and just berating us. He was taking his stand, maybe so everyone would be sure where he stood, If his, even if his cousin was mm-hmm. sitting next to Black people. Right. Mm-hmm. 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 So there was a schism that was created between us that was really never healed. Mm. referred to it when we would happen to see each other at at gatherings or funerals. We never mentioned it, but it was just this. uh, And he actually became good friends with um, Morgan Freeman later. Morgan Freeman had a restaurant in Clarksdale, and he he was friends with him. So he must have had his own journey, too, to to finally see the light. But that was 1963, 64, when that happen. Mm-hmm. And so again, you're pointing out how families can sometimes be torn apart as a result of this. So you said when Dr. King came along, you began to become a little bit more active. So what were some of the things that you did in order to uh, promote racial equity? Well, I was by then a, a teacher in Memphis and I had been assigned a, a school, the school where Elvis, Elvis Presley had attended high school, and it was the first year that it was going to be integrated. Mm-hmm. So there were probably half black and half white students. The faculty was not integrated at that point. The next year they would become integrated. And so I had a homeroom students of 40 black students. <laughs> Maybe there were 10 white students in that. And so... These were my students, and 
they were from uh, poorer neighborhoods and a rough part of Memphis, and and we were in it together. Mm-hmm. So there was a, a bonding that happened, even though it was it was a really difficult year. But at the same time, there was a sanitation strike, sanitation workers in Memphis, mm-hmm. just acting asking for a basic wage level pay. But their theme was, and they wore these placards that said, I am a man. Yes. Basically, it was so basic. It was so heart rendering. And that really just opened my heart. Mm-hmm. And so my husband and I joined a few of the the protests, the marches. And then it was within that strike that Dr. King came and spoke and then was killed. And yeah. so we, we then marched after that. And it it really was a watershed moment, I think, for the whole country where you realize just how serious this is on both sides. Right. Gangaji, I wonder, you know, as I'm listening to you talk about the sanitation strike and you marching in it, and I knew that, you know, that, what followed was Dr. King assassinated. What was it like for you in 2020 when George Floyd was murdered? And then now you see all these millions of people marching again. What did that do to your, your spirit? Hmm. Well, you know, the spirit, once it has been set free, (laughs) recognizes itself in, in these people who are saying no more these these black people or women or all over the world yeah with the horror of the continuance mm. of the racism and the racism in police departments or, or places of power that still suppresses that and uh, so there's a disheartening aspect to it mm-hmm. but there's also a heartening aspect that it's like we are in this, you know, we, and now it's younger people are in this and we will stay in this as long as it's necessary. Yes. And so my heart goes out to that. Yes. That's beautiful. Thank you. Thank you for saying um, that. I, I know that for me, even though I didn't go through, you know, what my ancestors went through, I know that I've seen the shift and I can remember, I can remember the aftermath of James Meredith. I can remember seeing the whites only, black only signs that they kept up, even though we could still, you know, we could go in and use the same restroom, but the signs stayed up for a long time because it was sending a message to us. And and so I remember those things, but I also was able to help my children navigate in 2020 when they were so angry, I could use my wisdom from years ago to be able to help them to navigate mm. and also to call myself to this gr- this great work because mm. it is great work yes. and this soul work that I had been doing for years but it kind of stopped for a little mm. bit but but at the same time that I could move them along and help them to navigate mm. it was also still dreadfully painful mm. to say wow my ancestors died for us not to continue to have to go through this. And it was painful that my children now had to face it. Mm. But as you say, we, we continue to keep moving forward. Um, Gangaji, we do have to take another quick break. And when we come back for our last segment of the show, I really want to talk about then how you eventually got to India and how it has helped to continue to set your soul free. We will be right back after these messages. Hey everybody, it's Tommy D, the nonprofit sector connector coming at you from my attic. Each week here on talkradio.nyc, I host a program, Philanthropy in Focus. Nonprofits impact us each and every day, and it's my focus to help them amplify their message and tell their story. Listen each week at 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time until 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time right here on talkradio.nyc. 
In a post-COVID world, you may have many unanswered questions regarding your health. Are you looking to live a healthier lifestyle? Do you have a desire to learn more about mental health and enhance your quality of life? Or do you just want to participate in self-understanding and awareness? I'm Frank R. Harrison, host of Frank About Health, and each Thursday, I will tackle these questions and work to enlighten you. Tune in every Thursday at 5 p.m. on talkradio.nyc, and I will be Frank About Health to advocate for all of us. Calling all pet lovers. Pet Avengers, assemble! On the Professionals and Animal Lovers show, we believe the bond between animal lovers is incredibly strong. It mirrors that bond between pets and their owners. Through this program, we come together to learn, educate, and advocate. Join us live every Wednesday at 2 p.m. at talkradio.nyc. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC at www.talkradio.nyc. Now broadcasting 24 hours a day. We are back with the Dismantle Racism Show. Gangaji, thank you so much for our discussion. Now, before we end, Gangaji, you know, I happen to be a Christian pastor. And I know that a lot of people have been wounded by religion. And as you were saying, you saw incongruencies. And I know that my particular faith has also been used in ways that are inherently racist. In fact, that when we were enslaved, there was a Bible that just was just for enslaved people. And so for me, I believe it's the interpretation of our practices. And I believe that there's a way that we have to understand who we are. And so I just want to to acknowledge that I see the the deeply inherent problems with it. And I also see the beauty of it. Hmm. But I also recognize that there are many people who say I cannot be a part of this. So tell us about how you got to India and then how you became a spiritual teacher. Hmm. Well, you know, after Ole Miss and Leaving the South, I very much wanted and did leave the South and moved to California, to San Francisco in the early 70s. And just, I felt a release of the area, you know, the heaviness of the area. And and so I was a part of the counterculture, the freedom, love counterculture. And that was really fun, but ultimately not satisfying either. I recognized that I had been cut loose from what was incongruent in my upbringing and my religion, but I I hadn't found what I was searching for. Mm -hmm. So I I began some Buddhist meditations and other different kinds of meditation. And and after several years, I realized I was still just yearning for what I couldn't even say, but I began to pray. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't have even said who I was praying to, the, the universe, the cosmos, God, whatever we, we name that mystery, that force. And I just prayed for help. I didn't know what that meant. And I wasn't looking for a, a teacher per se. I certainly was not looking for an Indian guru. I had seen Indian gurus come through San Francisco and I... I had some negative judgment about the whole scene around the gurus. And and yet, I was praying for help, and I was truly praying for help. And after a series of really miraculous incidences, I found myself in India mm-hmm. meeting this man who opened the door when I knocked on it and said, Welcome. What do you want? <laughs> and somehow the word freedom came up. Wow. I want freedom. I don't know where that came from. I didn't say enlightenment. I didn't say God realization. I want freedom. He said, you're in the right place. 
and then he invited myself and my husband in for tea and and I he I said so tell me what to do thinking he would give me a new practice or a mantra or something and he said just be still mm. so I had meditated by then I thought I knew how to do being still so I was still and he said no no that's too much be really still don't do anything for a moment and once I was willing to be still, I felt an enormous fear arise. Mm. Fear of the unknown. Fear of, of what I was looking for. Fear of stillness. Fear of death. Fear of losing the ground I had gained in my mind. But I, I recognized he was a teacher and I was here and this was the answer to a prayer. So I was willing to be still. Mm. And in that stillness, I recognize, it's a present tense verb, the, the fulfillment that is our nature and the freedom that is here regardless of circumstances, physical, mental, emotional, social, global circumstances, that there is in all of us this, this light of freedom, of mm -hmm fulfillment mm -hmm. so he asked me to to share that with people i don't see myself as a guru i'm not a guru i'm i'm just like those, everyone i meet and i'm just willing to to meet everyone who's uh, drawn to me for whatever reason and and invite them to this stillness mm -hmm. and, and so that's, that's what you do now in your your practice your own practice but you offer that to people. Yes, and uh, and a lot just become the teacher. <laughs> yes, we all are the students and the teachers, aren't we? Because a lot of what I offer people is is a willingness to recognize or to overhear our own narratives mm -hmm. about the future or about the past, and the willingness to recognize the validity of those narratives. But that closer than the narrative is the freedom of being, is the fulfillment of being. Mm. So, Gangaji, if people wanted to come and work with you, how do they do that? Well, I have an online presence. I do a monthly online meeting. And I would recommend, if anyone's interested, going to the website. It's G-A-N-G-A-J-I dot O-R-G. And the full schedule, as well as a sampling of the form or in the format of my teachings. Mm. So we have to know, where does the name Gangaji come from? I mean, I know you happen to be on the Gangaji rivers when, when you went to um, India, but it's yeah. Ganges River, right? Not yeah, In English, we call it Ganges. In India, they call it Ganga. The river Ganga, and there's a, it's named for a goddess. And I came in one morning to meet with my teacher, and he said, oh, I dreamed about you last night. He said, I know your name should be Ganga. And then he said, and they should call you Ganga G to show respect. The G at the end is usually an honorific or what you would say to an older person. And so Ganga G is the name. I, I didn't think I would use it because I've never wanted names, especially hard to pronounce names from India. <laughs> but when he asked me to speak to people, I knew it was appropriate to, to speak to people with that name, Gangaji. Hmm. Well, Gangaji, I just love the name. And oh, really, I, I love your spirit in terms of this idea of, of freedom. And so when you think about when you think about your message of freedom and light, how how does that work with dismantling racism? Well, they are of the same cloth. If I hadn't been able to face my the lie of my own imprisonment hmm. by my participation in imprisoning and enslaving people, whether through my ancestral blood or in my personal life, it was that incongruency. If I hadn't faced that, then I wouldn't have been able to explore deeper levels of my own consciousness. Mm. 
Well, I do hope that people will come and they will look you up and uh, work with you uh, to help find freedom, just period, and to find their own inner light. Because I believe I define it as our sacred intelligence. And I believe we all have a place where we are meant to soar. So I want to thank you for being here today. I want to thank my guests for listening. Gangaji, what could you offer us in terms of a blessing as we end the show? Well, the blessing I love to offer is the invitation to trust yourself. And by trust yourself, I, I don't mean your emotions or your thoughts or even your intuition, but closer than that. Trust the truth of yourself. And then it naturally brings you home to yourself. Mm. Uh, Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Thank you to my listeners today. I want to invite you to um, please go to my website at sacredintelligence.com and learn more about the work that I do, as well as learn about a course that I have coming up beginning September 14th. It's a six-week course on dismantling racism. Please stay tuned for the Conscious Consultant Hour with Sam Leibowitz, where he helps you to walk through life with the greatest of ease and joy. Be well, be safe, be encouraged. Until next time, bye for now. business owner? Do you want to be a business owner? Do you work with business owners? Hi, I'm Stephen Fry, your small and medium-sized business or SMB guy, and I'm the host of the new show, Always Friday. While I love to have fun on my show, we take those Friday feelings of freedom and clarity to discuss popular topics on the minds of SMBs today. Please join me and my various special guests on Friday at 11 a.m. on talkradio.nyc. on edge hey we live in challenging edgy times so let's lean in i'm sandra bargeman the host of the edge of every day which airs each monday at 7 p.m eastern time on talkradio.nyc tune in live with me and my friends and colleagues as we share stories and perspectives about pushing boundaries and exploring our rough edges that's the edge of every day on mondays at 7 p.m eastern time on talkradio.nyc pet lovers pet avengers assemble on the professionals and animal lovers show we believe the bond between animal lovers is incredibly strong it mirrors that bond between pets and their owners through this program we come together to learn educate and advocate join us live every wednesday at 2 p.m at talkradio.nyc COVID world, you may have many unanswered questions regarding your health. Are you looking to live a healthier lifestyle? Do you have a desire to learn more about mental health and enhance your quality of life? Or do you just want to participate in self-understanding and awareness? I'm Frank R. Harrison, host of Frank About Health, and each Thursday, I will tackle these questions and work to enlighten you. Tune in every Thursday at 5 p.m. on talkradio.nyc, and I will be Frank About Health to advocate for all of us. Gateway to the Smokies. It airs on talkradio.nyc every Tuesday night from 6 p.m. to 7. Every episode is dedicated to memorable experiences in the Great Smoky Mountains National Park and surrounding areas. This show features experts and locals who will expound upon the richness of culture, history, and adventure that awaits you in the Smokies. Tune in every Tuesday from 6 p.m. to 7 on talkradio.nyc. Talk Radio NYC. Uplift, educate, empower.